Jason Black and this is the Bees for Bacon show. Today we've got a show all about rice with some popular dishes from around the globe and a chat about a few grain-inspired tipples from our man in the rice paddy, J.C. Viennes. From our own quarter of New Orleans and Hong Kong, Jack Carson talks to us about jambalaya in his newly opened restaurant, The Parish, and our regular go-to guy for all things Italian, Vinnie Loria lays down the law for a proper risotto. Word. JC will be testing a gadget for us this week, and Chef Reno Moran of Koshin gives us a few tips and tricks for the perfect pilaf. I'll also be chatting about the history of a classic dish from Valencia, the paella, and also talking you through a rice dessert, because who doesn't love a creamy rice pudding? It's a ladle full of the letter L in our alphabet soup today, and Roger de Leon of Little Burro wraps up the show with a rice-packed dish that has proven it's here to stay. As always, I've got a cookbook to share with you, which will be coming up right after our morning yarn with J.C. Viennes. Morning, J.C. Good to see you again. Good morning, Jason. Had some great WhatsApps wondering about champagne and pizza. It was a great show last week. Yes, of course. It's very good, unless you have Hawaiian pizza with pineapple. Because it's an absolute no-no in Italy. You know why? Because the Pope once said, no condom, no pineapple on a pizza. Right. Well, anyway, today we're doing a show about rice. Oh, <laughs> so I see you coming. You want to talk about rice wine. Well, let's talk a little bit about alcohol that comes from rice. Obviously, we live in Asia, and it's a it's a big part of um, what we eat. So, Well, frankly, I'm not so, so familiar with uh, with this kind of, uh, of wine, but um, obviously it's a spirit. So uh, a wine made from rice would be quite interesting in the way that uh, the rice has to be uh, cooked. Uh, we need to extract the starch from it. And by extracting the starch, we then need to make a, a, a sugary solution. And that sugary solution will then be fermented, fermented into a wine, fermented into a spirit. And uh, I heard actually that uh, the type of rice they're, they're using is very, very important uh, for the uh, final taste of the spirit or of the wine, which uh, for me was surprising because I thought rice was tasting like rice, really. But uh, apparently the raw material for making such, uh, such alcohols are very, very important, as important uh, as the grapes are uh, to make the wines that I am more familiar with. So this is quite interesting. And apparently the vintage can also have an influence, the vintage on when the rice was grown and uh, uh, also the method of growing the rice actually also apparently has quite a bit of effect on the final rice, rice wine or rice spirit. So I guess we can uh, we can find quite a lot of complexity here. We can find a lot of uh, of things to discover, which is a completely different world than and then what I'm used to. Well, if we if we look at it the other way and say, okay, uh, rice forms um, a part of an important part of many cuisines. If we have a look at the Italians and their risottos, the French have their pilaf. Um, how would you look at wines in a traditional sense with pairing with predominantly rice-based dishes? Let's let's talk initially about risotto, and then perhaps um, maybe go uh, to a briani or any other dish thereafter. 
Whereas you remember, we we spoke together, eh? my uh, my lovely suocera, as we call her in Italian, my mother-in-law. Eh? She always say, "What grows together goes together," and it makes a lot of sense. But uh, when it comes to Asia, it's a little bit more complicated because there's a lot of sauces and a lot of spices. And so, if we want to to match the food, I suppose we should we should uh, think of the base ingredient in this case the rice, but we should also think of what we are going to add to the rice. So, for example, in Italy, if we do a seafood risotto, it will be very very different than if we do a mushroom risotto, and it makes absolute sense. Uh, a seafood risotto will be much lighter, uh, much more fresh, and then it makes sense to pair it with. Um, uh, a white wine. And then when you uh, go for a um, mushroom risotto, it's very often made with red wine, actually. They, the, 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 the rice is actually cooked with red wine, so it would make sense because this is a more savory uh, 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 dish and it's also a more flavorful dish, so you want to match it with a wine that is a bit more powerful. So I suppose that a dish that is made with uh, steamed white rice um, predominantly, then I would want to have it something uh, with uh, something lighter, white wine or something more more easy to drink. Um, but uh, something more spicy with meat, uh, then I could go for, for red wine for sure. Okay, and um, so you, you're saying then it's it's about the the flavoring of the rice that's really going to determine the type of wine that you have. I believe so, yes. And I think that when we say it grows together, it goes together. I think it's also about the lightness of the wine. I think for me the, the, the second rule for, for food and wine matching is a, a light dish with a light wine. And when I say a light wine, it can be white or it can be red, as long as it's light. Sure. And so the dish, it's the same situation. Now, last week we had a very successful gadget test, and I thought, this time, let's do it again. Uh-oh. Yeah, the pressure's on. Yes, yes. You can't have two wins. So what have you got for me this time? Well, I brought along what's known as an aerator, oh. uh, and the theory is that it basically decants wine immediately. Yeah, that's the theory, yes. And what is your opinion of it? Well, I've made many tests with this before, frankly speaking. Of course, it was not scientific tests. It was with friends and the uh, environment where we did this test was uh, around the dinner table. But uh, when we do it blind, uh, as much as the marketing materials say it works, uh, I found that it doesn't really work. But I can understand why this tool could be useful. Because some wines, actually, uh, when you put it in a bottle for so long, when you keep it in the bottle for so long, they develop what we call a bottle stink. And very often that stink is not pleasant, of, of course. So very often that aerator will help to remove uh, that uh, that stink. It's a bad smell that sometimes reminds one of uh, uh, eggs. Um, and this is completely normal. It doesn't mean that the wine is defect. Uh, it's just that some grape varieties are what we call more reductive than others. And um, in an environment free of any oxygen, like a bottle, uh, it will develop that, that sort of uh, eggy smell. And it's nice to have this tool to remove that. But for me, I like to use the, the glass. I mean, the glass is an aerator. The glass is a decanter. The glass is a wonderful tool for making uh, uh, all kinds of little defect like this disappear. I don't think you're going to find many marketing people are going to put 
our aerator is fantastic. It removes the stink from bottles, but it doesn't really do the job of a good decanter. No, it doesn't really do a job of a really good decanter. Do you think there's something to be said with you really knowing about wine that um, you, you pick up that there's actually no difference, but a lot of people who are probably less qualified than you would think that it's a fantastic gadget? Let me tell you, this is a fantastic gadget to give for Christmas because today, it comes Christmas time, we don't know what to offer our friends and family members anymore. So what do we do? We go to the wine shop, we see that on the counter, we buy one, problem solved. <laughs> and that's it. I'm sorry, it doesn't solve anything related to wine. Thanks, JC. Now, if you've got any wine questions and you'd like them answered, send me a message on Facebook and we'll ask JC. Now, one of the best dining experiences of my life was at a restaurant called Shape in Easton, Berkeley. Now, given that this dinner was two nights after eating at the French Laundry, at the height of its success, I don't say that lightly. The food was superb, but more than that, it was the experience that exceeded my expectations. Now, the same can be said for the cookbook today, Cooking by Hand, by a chef called Paul Batoli. The reference to Chez Panisse is quite obvious when you know that the chef was at Chez Panisse for more than 10 years. This book ranks in my top 10 favorites because it's different. It takes you into the mind of a creative genius and focuses on technique over anything else. The book is also different because of its structure. It doesn't follow the typical starter main dessert theme or the other way that people do cookbooks by food groups or by seasons. It's more a series of essays, a collection of long stories on ingredients and how to extract the very best from them. As a carnivore, I found the meat section brilliant. I was drooling at the description on how to make a proper ragu. Pasta itself takes a hefty chunk of the pages, and like all of the other sections, it's very well explained. Importantly, it's one of those books that open you up to the science behind the dishes, not in formulas or jargon, but in a way that you can almost feel, smell, and taste each recipe as you read. Of the books that I've reviewed so far on the Beers for Bacon show, this one is a definite must-buy. Now let's talk a little bit about rice. According to Wikipedia, rice is the most widely consumed staple food on the planet. It provides more than one-fifth of the calories consumed worldwide. Packed with nutrients and in the colored variety a lot of antioxidants, it has been a source of protein, carbohydrate, fat and fiber since it was first domesticated somewhere between 8,200 and 13,500 years ago in the Pearl River Valley in China. Whilst it may not be the staple of every cuisine, this humble starch has become a part of many, be it in the short, medium or long grain variety. The shorter grains are traditionally used for desserts like rice pudding and the medium grains, because of their amylopectin, which makes the rice sticky, are ideal for dishes like risotto and sushi. The longer grains tend to remain intact when you cook them and are more suitable to those sort of typical fluffy rice dishes. There are two classic New Orleans dishes that rely heavily on rice. One is known as dirty rice, a dish that's cooked with chicken, livers and vegetable. And of course, the other one is the very popular jambalaya, a slow-cooked rice dish made traditionally with the holy trinity of vegetables, 
onion, celery and pepper with the addition of chicken, sausage and a strong stock. They even add seafood. Let's ask Hong Kong's king of the crawfish, Chef Jack Carson, for a jambalaya cooking lesson. Okay, as far as jambalaya goes, there's many different ways. But uh, for me, I find that the uh, Cajun is best, which is no tomato. Uh, Creole and Cajun, there's so many different ways. Uh, But for me, I like uh, no tomato, which means it's Cajun, kind of like a backyard or backwoods kind of jambalaya. Uh, The best is made in a Dutch oven. Cast iron, huge deep skillet, very nice, uh, on an open fire. I do like the smell of the smoke of the wood and everything. It actually goes into the jambalaya. Um, you want to use, obviously, your trinity with some garlic. Uh, chicken, andouille, preferably homemade, if you can. And really slow roast and kind of... You want to dehydrate most of the vegetables as you're sautéing it and bring down uh, the moisture content. And then add in your meats. High, high heat, everything in high heat you're creating a lot of caramelization in the pan and once everything comes into like a certain stage of caramelization and everything's nice and hot and then I add rice and it's almost like a pilaf method it's where you've you got lots of the fat from the andouille coating the rice you're moving it in you're really just sauteing it kind of getting everything together in the pan and then really good chicken stock and that is the base of a good jambalaya, is the good andouille and the chicken stock. And once that happens, just enough to where you would normally put in, as in like a rice cooker, as they do here, um, the ratio to rice to chicken stock, and then remove it from the heat to where the residual heat in this massive pan, and then carry it, I would say, most of the way. Uh, another 10 minutes or so on the heat, and then it's like baking it. At home, sometimes I throw it in the oven, but it's best to do it over the open fire, like I said. Um, lots of seasonings. Uh, I use Cajun seasoning, thyme, bay leaf is a definite must. Um, and then once your rice starts to fluff a little bit, I add shrimp. And I do it at the end because you don't want to absolutely hammer the shrimp out and make it small and chewy and everything. Uh, and you can finally do fine seasoning, like tuning with it. Um, and then... Uh, once the rice is just about perfect, you can just, you know, uh, I guess pull it off and serve it, man. Um, there's a lot, you know, it depends on, it's, I don't know how to say it, uh, jambalaya is a, a spiritual thing for me almost, you know. Um, some people like to add tomatoes. For me, it makes the rice mushy, but at the end, it's okay. Jambalaya! That was Chef Jack Carson. Jambalaya is a dish that takes its origins from the Spanish. Now, there are countless regional specialities that are wrongly viewed by outsiders as a national dish. Mention Spain, and one immediately thinks of tapas and paella. But there is so much more to it than that. On the rice dish, if you ask people in Spain, they'll tell you that paella is actually from Valencia, and that's as far as you'll get. It isn't representative of the country. No matter, 
a classic Valencian paella is still delicious. A highly seasoned rice dish, cooked of course in a paella pan. It's made with white rice, green beans, a variety of meats, and of course saffron and rosemary. Seafood paella is similar, but naturally with the addition of, um, yeah, seafood. You can't have a chat about rice without chatting about risotto. So let's go over and chat to Vinnie Loria about the rules and the way to make it properly. Risotto is a style of cooking rice, and an Italian style of cooking rice. So it starts off with uh, a short grain rice. Uh, I generally like uh, cannaroli or uh, arborio. Uh, arborio is probably the most common. You take the rice, first you sweat the onions, white onion. You don't want any color on your onions when you're making a risotto. Like this is a very classic traditional way of, of doing it, a very classic Italian traditional way of doing it, the proper way, right? You don't, you sweat the onions. Sweating is just a little bit of oil in a uh, medium hot pan and lightly cooking. Uh, once the onions become translucent and become soft, then you add your rice. You don't want to take them too far because if you take them too far, you're now going to cook your rice with them. You, and you want your rice to get nice and toasted. Then you're going to overcook your onions while you're cooking your rice. You add your rice, you toast your rice. Toast that, you're tossing it and stirring with a wooden spoon constantly uh, for about two, two to three minutes, depending on the amount that you have. Uh, when I say toast, again, it's toasting because you are not using a lot of oil. You're using a little bit of oil. You're getting very, very minimal color on that rice, but you're kind of bringing out the oils and the flavors of the rice itself. You're, you're waking it up. You're, you're making it come alive. Right? Once you've done that, you hit the pan with uh, a little bit of white wine and do what we call deglazing. Uh, we deglaze the pan, get anything that's stuck to the pan off the pan. And not too much, just enough. And you reduce that white wine down to, I always say, down to a syrup. Technically, it is, doesn't really reach a syrup because you're already developing some starch in the, in the, in the liquid. You, but you get this thick, viscous uh, liquid, stirring all the while. Next, you're going to hit it with, you're going to have chicken stock or whatever stock you really want. I just did a lobster risotto the other day. I made a nice, really rich lobster stock. I personally like a pretty rich stock because I like to start my uh, risotto off with, uh, you know, a really good base flavor. So I start with a, a little bit of, uh, let's say, chicken stock in this case, right? A nice, rich chicken stock. And you have that stock, not boiling, you have it simmering. About one, four to six ounce ladle at a time. Ladle in, stir. Don't stop stirring. The key is to keep it from sticking to the bottom of the pan and what you're doing is the whole key important part of making risotto is that you're developing a creamy natural gluten. Like I said, it's almost like you have a, 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 a viscous liquid that's binding your risotto together, but you're still keeping those beautiful grains of rice and, and allowing the rice to keep its integrity. You go ladle by ladle as the uh, rice absorbs the liquid, as some of the liquid evaporates, you're stirring the whole time and you continue to go ladle by ladle until you have the rice cooked to, again, this is another part where where people get confused. You want it to be al dente, but you don't want it to be pasta al dente. You know, you want it to be a small bite to it, but you still want to develop, you're still trying to develop that nice creaminess and that beautiful mouthfeel and texture that risotto is well known for. Once you get to that point where it's a a little bit al dente, you, it's almost like you have a silky liquid 
that's binding the the rice, then you know you're in the right spot. You're gonna hit it with the two two very important ingredients. You also can if you whatever else you want to use. You're just we're talking about basic risotto. You know, let's say you want to add mushrooms or you want to add lobster, whatever chicken, this that the other thing. You add at that time. But right after you do that, then add two very important ingredients. And I really like to use cold butter, so it melts slowly and evenly. And I like to fresh grate in Parmigiano with a with a microplane. So again, it has that that really nice, light, even creaminess to it. If you stir in the butter, um, you stir in that Parmigiano, you season it really well. It takes a lot of salt and pepper. People are often very afraid. I taste risotto probably 15 times before I actually serve it. Because it's so important to get that perfect texture of the grains of rice, of the creaminess of that uh, liquid sauce. It's really not the right word. The, the creaminess of the, the rice itself of the, that's surrounding the grains. It's important to get the, the right texture of the creaminess, the bite of the rice, and of course the taste. People are afraid of salt and pepper. Season it, taste it. Season it, taste it. Take a sip of water, season it, taste it. Until you feel like you actually really have a delicious tasting, perfectly seasoned, beautifully developed, creamy, rich risotto. But the funny thing is, there isn't one drop of cream in that risotto. Thanks for that, Vinny. You make it sound rice and easy. Let's go over and chat to Chef Reno Moran all about the French rice dish, the pilaf. To make the perfect pilaf, you will need uh, good rice, non-sticky, long grain, can be fragrant, like jasmine rice or something like that. Start with uh, hot oil. Um, I like to add spices inside, like cardamom, cloves, star anise, uh, to roast into the oil, into an Indian-style kind of rice. Then add my chopped onions, white onions preferably, not too strong, sweet onions works better. Uh, let it sweat without color, it's better. Uh, add a bit of garlic, a bit of thyme, a bay leaf, stuck your rice in it, don't rinse the rice before, it doesn't need, because it's non-sticky, so you don't need to rinse it out. Uh, coat your rice with the fat and the onions all together, uh, stir it, stir it nicely, and put 1.5 uh, measure, so one and a half measure of your volume of rice in broth, can be broth, chicken broth, fish broth, anything that you like in fragrance, but it works as well with water and salt and cover it up with a cartouche, what we call it, the chef call it cartouche, it's a size to the same size as your pan of uh, baking paper. Put it on the top with a little hole in the middle, a chimney to make sure that the steam can get out. Put a lid on the top of your pan, stick it in the oven, 160, not too hot, and let it cook for about 20 minutes maximum and you're done. Chef Reno Moran, let's wrap up our rice story, so to speak, and chat to Roger de Leon about the burrito. Uh, with the history of the burrito, it's seen very many uh, forms uh, coming from Mexico and being reintroduced in the United States. Uh, focusing on the San Francisco style burrito, it really has everything inside of a tortilla. So that has the rice, the meat, the beans, the salad, salsas, sauces, everything. Um, and the rice is really one of the most important in ingredients because it it's the base. It keeps everything together. It doesn't matter what other flavors you have. It really helps to absorb all of that and magnify it throughout the entire dish. You can use different flavors of rice. Um, you can keep it very simple or you can, um, you can go the healthy route. We like to do different 
um, use different flavors like lime. Um, we use coriander and try to really try to to flesh out that burrito and make it make it a little bit bigger, make it more of a substantial meal. The, the burrito started by being um, something that you eat on the go, and that having those different elements inside really helps to make it an entire meal all to itself. Thanks for that, Roger. Well, that's a wrap almost on our stories. So before we go to the rice pudding, let's have a little of the letter L in our alphabet soup. Not for Weight Watchers, L is for lard, the fat from the belly of a pig used in a similar way to oil. To lard something is of course a little bit different. It's the process of inserting strips of pork belly into meats to keep them moist. L is for the love of all things oink, but it's also for latka, a potato and onion pancake fried in oil. L is for lox, the name given to smoked salmon, especially for bagels, which of course have been L for leavened. That's to make rice with a little bit of yeast. L is for lamington, those little cubes of sponge cake that have been dipped into chocolate and rolled in shredded coconut. L is also for liaison, a mixture of egg yolks and cream that's used to thicken soups and sauces. Our last L on the list today is the L for lovage, a herb that's known as sea parsley that tastes a little like celery and works well with chicken, potato and stews. We're ending on a sweet note with a recipe for rice pudding, taking inspiration from a previously reviewed book, The Prawn Cocktail Years. And this is different because it's baked without egg yolks. You'll need butter, sugar, cream, milk, an orange and a lemon, nutmeg, cinnamon, vanilla, and of course, pudding rice. You want to preheat your oven to 150 degrees. You're going to heat your butter in a pan, add the sugar, and then stir in the rice. Add the milk, and you need to stir it well. You take a zester, and you zest the fruit, and add this to the mix, as well as the spices. Season with just a little pinch of salt, add the cream, and then bring to a boil. Turning down immediately, so it just simmers. Of course, you're going to put the milk in there at the same time. Now, pop all of this into a baking dish and then into the oven and cook until set. You want the top golden. And then let it cool a little before enjoying. Check out the recipe proper on our Beers for Bacon on RTHK3 Facebook page. Next week, we're doing a show all about the egg. Now, I was going to do a show about the chicken first, but... We were debating what came first, and you know how that one goes. Until then, have a fantastic week. Bye-bye.